Fantastic. Well, I want to encourage you this morning because I am encouraged, and uh, we're together again. <laughs> oh, we're together again. I just praise God for that because we've come back. We've come back after such a long time away, and God is present with us. I've noticed this over this first half term. I've noticed God's presence with us, and do you know what's really led me to uh, perceive that is the fact that everyone stays at the end. Everyone stays at the end longer than I think I ever remember before the pandemic. And it's, it's not that we've got great tea or coffee. Uh, it's not that our conversation is like always top notch, but it's because we're together again in God's presence. And uh, I've also been encouraged by the last two prayer meetings as well, because if you've come to them, we've just waited on God's Holy Spirit to come. We've just waited and, and sat there and put our hands out and said, Holy Spirit, come and fill us. And it's been wonderful. we it was described, I think, by Pippa as soaking in the spirit, a bit like a sponge. And, uh, and that's really what we've been doing. We may well do that some more. And uh, we've been seeing God move uh, here among us. We've had some guests coming along. Some new folk have joined us. You may have met some of them. And we're actually going to start a Just Looking course this week with someone who's come and joined us in the last half term. And uh, only a couple of weeks ago, um, some of you might have been here, we had young Ivy come and share from the front. Uh, thanks to God for saving her brother. And I believe there's a story there, uh, and uh, we need to praise God for that at the right moment. Uh, we won't go into it today. But again, I just, I just caught a glimpse of what God's doing among us. When that young girl came and said something, sing praise to God from the, from the start, it just, uh, from, the, from the microphone, it just really did touch me, and I hope it did you as well. Other things I am encouraged by is that I walked outside the other day, and it smelled like spring. And the sun was actually out. That was one thing that also encouraged me. And I'm encouraged as we pursue Jesus together, as we're focusing on him, simply just being with him, simply becoming more like him and being together again as we do so. And today, we're going to keep pursuing Jesus and we're going to pursue him into a party. <laughs> yes, like we trust the ladies' evening will be a party. It's a good time. It's a, a time Jesus goes to spend with sinners and scoundrels and the law of society uh, back in his day. And uh, instead of me reading it to you, because you've heard a lot of me already together for one thing, but also because I just love to include people. I'm an includer. It's one of my top strengths. Uh, I'm going to ask Kate to come and read the passage to you. Uh, so Kate, why don't you come up here and, uh, yeah, you can give her a clap. Yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah, but go for it. Thank you. Here we go. Luke 5. What are the verses? 27 to 39. <laughs> Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi looking at his tax. Follow me, he said to him. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. The large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, claimed to why do you eat and drink sinners? Answered him, not the healthy need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to righteous, but sinners questions about fasting. Said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. Those are the disciples of the Pharisees. Yours go on eating and drinking. Answered. Can you make a test of the bridegroom's fast while he is with them? Time will come when the bridegroom takes from them 
Bokeh State Park. Hold them in parables. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. Judge, torn the new garment. Patch from the new one, not match the old. No one pours new wine into old wine. He does new wine first in. Wine will run out and the wine ruined. No, new wine must be poured new wine. No one after old wine wants new. Says old. Amen. Give another clap as she sits down. Why not? <laughs> Praise God. Yes. Yeah. Great passage. You may have read it before. And when reading this passage and praying over it somewhat, um, three things really jumped out at me. The first one was that Jesus is the greatest doctor. The second one was that Jesus is the bridegroom who pursues his bride. And the third one was an invitation to be made anew. And so with the greatest doctor starting there, um, you need to know just a little bit of context here perhaps. But in the previous chapter, Jesus has forgiven the sins of a paralytic person and then backed up these massive words with a miracle. He says, stand up, take your mat, and go home. And people have witnessed this. They've seen and heard the things he's done and said, and they marvel as they depart. And uh, this next passage that follows that is when Jesus calls to a guy called Levi, saying, follow me. And as Kevin mentioned last week, uh, that's just what his disciples would do. When Jesus or a rabbi called a disciple, they would leave everything. They'd leave a post, their job, and that's exactly what Levi does to pursue Jesus. And he throws this massive party with a large company of tax collectors. And tax collectors were separated from the other Jews by their job choice. They were rejected because they worked for the Romans. And their only friends were other tax collectors, other people that people had rejected. And so they'd been shunned away, but they have this party together. And they're laughing and drinking and enjoying the feast. And then... Along come these Pharisees, these people who love to do the right thing. They love to try and be holy. They love the law of Moses. And they say to Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus replies, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So why does he say that? Well, he says that because he is the greatest doctor. And he's calling to all those who know they need to be cured of their ailments, whether they're mental, physical, emotional, or spiritual. And it's verse 32 that highlights the spiritual. There's this clear distinction between righteous, those who could stand before God and be shown up, show their perfect record, and those who are sinners, those who know full well that they are imperfect and that something deep in their heart is wrong, which then dictates their behavior. They know that the source of the problem is in their hearts. And uh, it's really interesting at this moment, these Pharisees remind me a little bit of my grandfather, um, who sadly passed away now, but he would never propose a trip to the doctor. He didn't want to go. He claimed he was fine. He claimed he was okay, even if he clearly was not. Even if he had a huge gash in his arm or he was coughing and spluttering or couldn't get out of bed. No, no, I don't need a doctor. I don't need one. I'm fine. And the scary thing is, I'm like that too. So sometimes I'm stubborn and I go, I don't need a doctor, I'm fine. And yeah, okay, I give in. Often I give in. I have to these days. But it's 
It's pride that gets in the way, isn't it? It's pride that says, I don't need help, I'm fine, I can handle this on my own, I'm tough. But the reality is, when something's wrong with us and it is damaging our health, we do need a doctor. We do need support. We do need a a hospital if we are really, really sick. And the trouble is, if we get to thinking that way about our sin, the things that we do and we think and say we're wrong, and uh, some of the indicators of which if our thinking is wrong here are things like never admitting we're wrong or refusing to apologize or take, not taking responsibility for the things we do wrong. They're just indicators of a, of a deeper illness, which is sin, which is in every human heart. But if we deny that, we become just like the Pharisees, who are just as sinful as every one of us here, but they refuse to acknowledge it. They never admit it. They refuse to believe it. They refuse to believe they need a doctor. They refuse to believe they need saving from their sins because of all their holy works and activities. They're following the law. They're trying to go above and beyond the law to prove their holiness to God and to human beings. And this really is the tale of the self-righteous who are blind. They love that law so much they can't see the wood for the trees. They're so deep into it, they can't see their need for salvation. And the truth is, no matter how hard they work, no matter how hard they try and fulfill that law, they can't be perfect because the problem isn't in their outward behavior. The problem is in the root of their hearts, and it's only Jesus, only the only perfect one who has ever lived in human history. He's the only one who can actually be called holy, and he's the only one who has the solution to the problem of sin. He's Jesus, the greatest doctor. And what's interesting at this point is because this second half of the passage is a continuation of that dialogue, having called Levi. And after calling Levi and then setting up this party, it's the Pharisees who are pursuing Jesus. They're the ones following him around because they want to get him to explain himself. They want to understand why he's doing the things he's doing. He wants to understand why he's calling sinners, which kind of brings us to the next few verses, 33 to 35. They then say to him in the next part of the dialogue, John's disciples often fast and pray. It's John the Baptist. And so so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. And that's our sort of second heading. Jesus is the bridegroom pursuing his bride. And this dialogue continues. And the next question is about prayer and fasting. And there's a comparison going on between John and the disciples and Jesus because they've come to realize that they are not the same as him and that Jesus is not performing like the other rabbis of the time. They He isn't following in the footsteps of Moses and Samuel or David or other heroes from the Old Testament and teaching his disciples to fast. And they're going, what's wrong with him? Why isn't he doing this? What's the problem? And they compare him to John and themselves, but they don't actually accuse him of breaking the law. He's not. You see, the Pharisees put a lot of value on praying and fasting. Why? Because they do it publicly to show others that they are the holy ones. And the problem is, that they were going about it all the wrong way. They'd taken on this attitude that led them to fast in order to get God to move and to do do a deal, to affect a change. And I have to confess this to you at times. In the past, I have fallen into this trap. I have fasted to try and get people to 
on a course that we're running on a Just Looking or a Alpha, and I fasted for two days, and I got to the end of the two days, and no one had come to the course, and I found myself going, I fasted for two days. Ah, oh, no, I got it wrong again. I realized I turned a fast into something more like a hunger strike, trying to force God to move, trying to get him to do something, when wrestling with him, when actually that was the wrong way to go about it and, and not the proper kind of application of fasting. And it's in Matthew's gospel, if we just jump over there for a moment, where Jesus instructs his disciples in this way regarding fasting, in contrast to the Pharisees. He says to them, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put on oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is seen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so it is good to fast, and it is good to demonstrate a hunger for God in that way, for him to move, but no one else needs to know. Jesus points them to this more intimate setting between father and child, where they can make petitions and requests, but just be together in this moment, relying on God, depending on him. And so my encouragement to you from that is to give fasting a go. If you've never done it, you, will, you may find you really enjoy it. You might find it really hard to start with. And uh, some time ago, actually, Tim does a really good video on this. If you want to know more about the detail of fasting, you can ask us for that or look it up. But if you give it a go, I'll, I will never know. <laughs> and that's okay. But God will. And uh, you can pursue him for more of his spirit in that way. And so Jesus then replies, explaining to the disciples, uh, explaining his disciples' lack of fasting is tied up in his very identity as the Son of God. He says, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Now imagine you go to a wedding reception and all the tables are laid and I used to work in Nutfield Priory where this was done to absolute precision uh, knives and forks a thumbnail width away from the edge etc and imagine that whole setting is there and all the guests come in and then the bride and groom and away celebration and they all sit down and they offer the food to them and they go no thanks I'm not eating today thanks and the bride and groom are like what what is going on why isn't anyone eating it just wouldn't be right would it to do that well Jesus is making the same point where the Pharisees fasted to get God's attention, Jesus says, there's no need. I, the Messiah, am right here, therefore it's good to eat while I am with you. And then he points directly to the cross, and he points directly to his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, which may have gone over the heads of the disciples at this point. He's saying, look, he'll be taken from them, then they'll fast. Maybe they wouldn't have known what that means, and we have the benefit of looking back and understanding it. And Jesus calls himself the bridegroom in this context, not because he's come to the party in a really nice proper suit or anything like that, but because he wants those who choose to follow him, choose to trust him, choose to put their faith in him and believe he is who he claimed to be. He wants them to grasp some of how much he loves them and his desire to be united with them. And a number of times in Scripture, you may know this, that the, the love of God for his people is emphasized using the story 
or the concept of a bridegroom and his bride. And uh, God's reflected in the bridegroom and his chosen people, the church, uh, as we call them these days, is the bride, his chosen people. And in keeping with that loving relationship, both passion and pain come alongside each other. And in the book of Hosea, in the Old Testament, we get a bit of a glimpse of God's determination, his patience, and his passion for redeeming the ones he loves. Even when the bride has been unfaithful in that story, he says, go and, ma- go and get her, go and win her back, go and marry her. He still wants us. He's that passionate. It's, it's, uh, we talked about running a bit today. Well, you, I think some people have to be really passionate about running to, to go through all that pain of a marathon. I, I never can see myself doing it, but... That takes passion, that takes drive, that takes determination. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, I want you this much. I'm willing to go through this. I'm so passionate. But along with that passion, pain exists alongside. And strong, passionate love comes hand in hand with it. And the cross is the demonstration of the willingness of God, the determination for him to be with us as he goes through the excruciating pain. It's a love like no other, and Jesus would have to endure it because he knew it was worth it, because he so loved sinful people, like the people he sat around on that day, like people like us. And he wants all human beings to join him at the party, just like he gets those guys together at the Levi's house. Uh, It acts a bit like a trailer. It acts like a short kind of film trailer for what is to come at the end of time, the biggest wedding feast there will ever be when Jesus the bridegroom unites with his bride, the collective church, and all those who have been born again, who have been forgiven and made new through faith in him will be together at this great celebration. And I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a fantastic feast. And you can read about it in Revelation 19, 6 to 10, if you want to. And so that's Jesus, passion and pain, pursuing his bride as the bridegroom. And the invitation to follow him here that he made to Levi is in fact not just an invitation to follow him in the moment, though he did do that, but it's an invitation to be transformed and changed into a brand new being, a fresh wineskin. And, uh, and that can take a moment. Someone can make that decision in a moment to repent and believe, but the process in a way takes so much longer. A lot of you might know that already, but it takes longer. And he says, come, follow me, Which brings us to the last heading. He says, follow me, but it's also an invitation to be made anew from the inside out. And so he delivers a short parable, which is a short story with a big truth behind it. And uh, it's in three parts. So I've just broken it up into three parts for us. So the Pharisees, whom it's directed at, they want Jesus to conform to their way of doing things, to stick to the old way of the law, to follow their traditions, etc., Because they think he's just another human rabbi, or maybe a prophet, but he's not. He's the son of God, fully fully human and fully God, and he's come to introduce this new way of living, a way that leads to living life to the full. And he says this in verse 36, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. No one does this, declares Jesus. And in the context of the wedding, you know clothes are important, significant. People dress up for the occasion. They do look their best. That's why we have all those photos done, etc. But the most resplendent is the bride and groom. 
Imagine buying your brand new outfit because you're going to a wedding and then looking at it going, oh, do you like that old dress I've got? Hmm. I'll just chop this one up and I'll stick some of the patches on it and I'll fill in some of the gaps. You just wouldn't do it. It just would not make any sense. You might chop up an old pair of jeans. That's what happened. That's what I used to do. Not, all right, not me, my mum. Uh, <laughs> that's the truth. She'd take an old pair and I'd say, oh, mum, I've got a hole in the knee. Could you sort it out? And she'd chop up an old pair. She's got loads of old pairs. Patch it up. You do old to old maybe, but you wouldn't do a new garment. Just come in and you wouldn't chop it up. And interestingly, this passage actually parallels with Matthew and Mark, two other Gospels. And in the same story, they don't talk about the patch not matching. They talk about the patch tearing away from the old. They're saying, look, the new bit will shrink, and it'll just tear away from the old. But, but Luke highlights the difference in aesthetic, if you like, how it looks. He says, look, it's not going to look anything like the previous garment. He's saying yeah, the, clearly the new will look different to the old, and you can't force the old to fit or match with the new. The two are different. Next, Jesus points to the impact of new wine on an old wineskin. He says, and no one pours wine into, new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. Nope, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Now, remember, he's at a party. So maybe he was eating and drinking and he just held one up. I should imagine the Pharisees are probably like, at the gateway, because it's all quite open plan back then. And maybe they can see him, and they, they don't want to come close, because they might get infected with sin from the sinners. So they keep their distance. Maybe he's waving at them, saying, look, a wineskin. This is what I'm talking about. And it is what it sounds like, a wineskin. It's a container made for wine, and it's made of animal skin, an organic material. And so just to give you a bit of help and context with this, uh, that would have needed treatment and maintenance if it was to be used again and again. But after a while, once it had been used, it would wear out. It would become old and brittle. It would have expanded to its maximum capacity. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you put a new wine into an old wineskin, that's going to ferment and burst it. It's going to expand and burst the old skin because it doesn't have the flexibility of a new one. And so he points to this new wine being put in an old wineskin. And uh, I think I've got a picture there if you're interested to see what um, people think they look like. And again, he says, no one does this. No one. Now, the only comparison I think I could come up with that's kind of close uh, is, is regarding cars. And to save you any blushes, uh, does anyone know someone who's put the wrong fuel in their car before? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not good for the engine, is it? It doesn't help it. It breaks it. It needs a proper clean and a flush and change, etc. And uh, you don't get such trouble on a bike, do you? doesn't happen. No, uh, and maybe that's the future. But uh, this is the trouble, you see. You, you, he's saying it just doesn't work. Trying to put new into old doesn't work. You can't force the old to receive the new. And he's pointing them to a new way of living in him, a spirit-filled way of living. He's saying you can't have the old and new alongside each other. There's a new way to follow. You see, the historic ways of approaching God can't comprehend and maintain this new way of life that Jesus is talking about, this dynamic, flexible, able to expand and contract, be emptied and filled again. He can't keep up. It can't do it. And so Jesus says it must be this way. You must be new to be filled with new wine. And he concludes with verse 39, um, where he says, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Jesus is 
introducing this new way that contrasts and clashes with the old. And he's saying, look, it's not going to make sense to some people. In the final line, he declares that there'll be some who outwardly, they will reject his message. Some may have accepted him partially and tried to do that, but again, he explains others will not even attempt to try the new wine. And the translation um, kind of issue there uh, talked about by some commentators is how not that people would think the old is better, but actually that people would think the new just has no merits whatsoever. So it wouldn't be like they'd say, oh, the old days were better. They'd actually say, well, just that new way has got absolutely no merit at all. And that's a dangerous place to be if you intend to follow Jesus. The spirit-filled life leads us into change, to transformation, to newness. And we've got to be ready as followers of Jesus to ask by the Spirit, what is the new thing you are doing, God? What is the new thing and how can I fit into it? And this change as we pursue him, this kind of becoming more like him is, is not about the stuff that we do. It's actually about becoming who we really are in Christ. And maybe that's quite a deep question for a Sunday morning. Maybe you need to take that into life groups uh, or into a one-to-one with someone else and just say, who am I becoming as a result of following Jesus? And what does that look like? And do I need to change? Do I need to go back to God again? Be filled afresh? Be changed once again? Because as we become more aware of Jesus, more like him, and, and focus on his heart and becoming different people, that will affect our behavior. We, we can't really afford to do it the other way around, otherwise we'll just get frustrated. It doesn't really work that way. See, Jesus is telling the Pharisees that this spirit-filled life, the life with him, changes everything. It changed everything of his disciples. It changed everything for Levi when he stood up and left his post behind. And many of those Pharisees, well, they repented. They changed their thinking and believed in Jesus. They followed him, but many also just said, that new way has got no merit whatsoever. I'm not going there, and stayed as they were. And so implicitly in this text, Jesus is making an invitation to all to be made new through faith in him and to be filled with what we now know is the Holy Spirit. And this is a real joy that we can do this and be filled supernaturally. And we haven't got time for that whole other preach about being baptized in the Spirit and filled again and again. But that's what he's inviting people to do is come and be filled with new wine because they've been made into a new wineskin. And so in conclusion and for reflection, I want to encourage you to think about just how Jesus is that greatest doctor. He's here for the sick and there's people all around us who need to hear this. They need to hear about Jesus. Those who've tried everything else can now come to him. And he wants you to come to him, to confess that you are sinful and be made whole by putting your faith in him. And he is that doctor who will heal your ailments. He's also this wonderful bridegroom who is pursuing his bride. And if, if you follow him already, he wants you just to remember how passionately he loves you personally. And I believe it's personal. I do have that conviction about that, that it's personal. He knows you. It's not a blanket statement. He knows you personally. So much so, and he so loves you that he was willing to die in your place before rising again. And lastly, I believe there's this extension of an invitation to us now, particularly if in the last couple of years, you've just felt like you've become like an old wineskin. If you've just felt like you've been maybe 
corrupted by lies, made brittle by circumstance and fear, made to be fe- feel unworthy, if you've become like that, if you, if you sense that, well, then you may want to respond in a moment and come and be made new again. That's what God's all about. He loves re- 